Hi guys, welcome back to episode 103 of the Fitness Devil Podcast. We've got Lou Schuler on today. He's been around the industry a little while, so you're going to get a lesson in history, the history of the fitness industry, where why we have gyms all over the place that we all have to work out in, uh, why fitness is more popular. We talk about the effects of the internet and how that has influenced a lot of what's going on in our fitness industry. A big discussion, a little bit of ranting on fads and trends that have come and gone in, in loose time in the industry. Some talk about cornflakes and enemas and a lot of other odd stuff. And we've got the lowdown on what's happening with the Fitness Summit in Kansas City in 2020. So you got to listen to find out. Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, we've got Lou Schuler on here today. So he's one of the elder statesmen of the fitness industry. We're going to make probably a lot of old jokes. I think he's going to appreciate that. Uh, he is the editorial director of the Personal Trainer Development Center. And that's pretty much the largest personal training website in the world. So if you're not following it, you're listening to this podcast and you train people, you probably should. And uh, so I actually looked, he has a Wikipedia page. So I don't know how many of our guests actually have their own Wikipedia pages. But he's also, it says on there, he previously worked as the fitness director of men's health and men's fitness magazines. And if you look closely, it lists off all the books he's written, mostly fitness and nutrition stuff with his prominent industry friends. Most of them were with Alan Cosgrove, who's an industry legend himself. And I actually got to meet Lou just shy of, what, three years ago at the uh, the fitness summit in Kansas City. He's the MC of it all and the personality behind it. And his fingerprints are all over the industry. So it's a real honor to have you here. Well, thanks. And, and I'm glad it's my fingerprints and not my footprints because that would uh, that would imply something completely different. So <laughs> anyway, uh, nice to be here. It would. And this is pretty impressive because that was a long list of stuff and Andrew nailed it. So I want everyone to appreciate that because <laughs> that was a well, lot. Anyone who's listened to this before knows that one of us bungles the script consistently. One yeah, of us doesn't. Time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's usually me. Yeah, that's what I meant. But it's the best, so this is funny, Lou. I'm usually the one that messes it up because Andrew's the writer for the thing, and I just read it, and I'm bad at reading. When Andrew screws it up, it's the best because he knows it, and he, like, freezes up, and then he's like, fuck, 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 <laughs> and it's the best. So it's you don't see Andrew flustered very often, but it's amazing when he does it live. So hopefully he does it today. We'll see. Yeah. Boy, so I, so I can look forward to that. Yeah, like, I'm totally going to try to push it, but if you, if you notice anything off, call him out on it. It's, it's okay, nice. all right. I'll see. If, I'll see if I can trip uh, trip up the big fella, and, and uh, uh, hilarity will ensue. Well, um, let's let's actually start with you know what your current work is. Uh, you know what your current vision with the PTDC is, and you know if you have in mind a legacy that you'd like to leave on the industry with your own work and your work through the PTDC. Well, so far my biggest legacy is not dying, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. So. Um, sort of gets to the gets to the core of you know what we try to do as fitness professionals is help people live longer and so you know so far so good um, with the PTDC uh, I, I should say I, I met John at the fitness summit in 2012 we hit it off right away um, never ever thought that I'd be working for him but when I look back at, at my career trajectory I see that it makes perfect sense because. When I got my first job, uh, fitness writing job at Men's Fitness Magazine in 1992, my job was to interview personal trainers. 
And I had no way to sort out which were the good trainers and bad trainers. So what we ended up doing was we would work with trainers who had PR reps. We would work with the trainers who trained celebrities because that sounded cool. You know, it's like you could you could say, well, here's, you know, Andrew Coates. And he works with the most famous deer trainer up there in Alberta um, or, or, or wherever you happen to we're, be. We're in Alberta. Uh, Edmonton, Alberta. Re- represent your resume here. Yeah. So. So we would go with, you know, okay, so who, who who works with impressive clients? And one day I'm in a gym in L.A. and we're doing a photo shoot with a trainer that I'd interviewed. And I noticed all the other trainers snickering about it behind his back. And it kind of, I, you know, it, it was one of those minor light bulb moments where I realized, oh, yeah, the people that I'm impressed with because they associate themselves with somebody who's well known. And I can't remember who it was back then. Um, aren't necessarily the best trainers. And so as I got better at this, I got better at, I I hope I got better at figuring out who had real information and who was, uh, just, just really good at self-promoting and, you know, getting in, uh, you know, getting in close, establishing relationships with which rich and powerful people, and, you know, in L.A., you can imagine all the different ways to do that. The guy, you know, I'm not saying this ever happened to me, but, you know, somebody might have been like a like a celebrity's, you know, drug dealer or something or, <laughs> you know, and, and suddenly that person's a trainer. We got him in the magazine and, you know, we can't we couldn't tell the difference. So that's sort of where my trajectory is in that. As I got more serious about this. And as fitness publishing grew uh, and became, you know, not just a niche, but an actual genre where, you know, you could have a career doing this. Um, I got to the point where I could work with the smartest trainers. I figured out how to meet them. I network with them. We hung out, you know, you've been to the fitness summit. So, you know, that there's some, you know, really smart, I, I don't want to say innovative. Well, probably innovative, but you know, it's a great place to meet people who are on the way up, mm-hmm. and then to listen to the wisdom of people who who have reached a certain level, and you know, down. they might still be on the way up. On the way but down. you don't meet many people there who are on the way down. Well, <laughs> you don't meet many on the way down. So it tends to be a really good place to meet and figure out who's on the way up, get to know people, um, and it becomes almost uh, I don't want to say a hierarchy because that sounds really bad and snobbish. But there is a progression where you might meet somebody who's just like this, you know, kind of eager uh, entry level personal trainer, a beginner to the fitness industry. And within a few years, they might be speaking there. You know, they, they, they might be the person I might be quoting them in an article within two or three years if they've got some, you know, they've got some great ideas. But it does all start with having a filtering system, and it took me a long time to develop that. I can't even remember what your question was. So when you – oh, legacy. Legacy. <laughs> legacy. So that's what the legacy. I hope the legacy is that I've identified a lot of really talented people who had a lot to offer. I've helped nurture them in their careers to the point where I could – flagrantly abuse their expertise for my own personal gain and, and for our own articles and books and all that. Um, and then in turn, those people would help somebody else. So I hope I've had a positive influence in that way, but I could also just be kidding myself because I'm old and that's what we do. I want to throw, well, there's actually two thoughts I had there. First, you mentioned celebrity trainers that got me thinking just how many or few people kind of in, in our sphere who work with famous people. And immediately I think Jordan Syatt with Gary Vaynerchuk, <clears throat> um, Ben Bruno, he's got I, 
Uh, what's her name? Kate Upton and, and does some work with Justin Timberlake and some other people in LA. And what's her name? The comedian does the best one. <coughs> oh, Chelsea, uh, Chelsea Handler. Handler. Yeah. Um, uh, Chad Landers works with some you know people in the Hollywood right. area. Uh, Joe DeFranco, I think, is someone we respect a lot. He's got a few celebrity people. Triple H, the Triple wrestler, H is the best one. <clears throat> but in our in our universe, it doesn't necessarily equate um, you know training famous people with being you know kind of a really really respected trainer. So there's that. And then you're talking about the... It's, it's, pos- it's possible. It's possible. But totally. there is no natural connection between those two things. In fact, if you're training celebrities, you may be more likely to be... Uh, well, I, I shouldn't even say that, but let's just say there's no connection. Some of the smartest people I know yeah. and I've interviewed have worked with famous people, with you know high-level athletes. Um, but, you know, like I said, there, there's... I, I, Alan Cosgrove, I don't know if he's ever worked with a celebrity and he, you know, has probably been the biggest influence on, on my entire career. We've known each other since 1999. So in those 20 years, I've probably learned more from Alan than it's possible. I've learned more from Alan than every other fitness professional put together. <laughs> but Alan would modify that by saying that he was just teaching me stuff that he learned from other people mm-hmm. like Mark Verstegen and, and, you know, whoever else he would consider his influences uh, over the years that he learned from them. He taught people like me. I then pass that knowledge on, I hope, um, farther down the line. So it, 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 uh, the closest I think I can remember Alan coming to a celebrity. I, I went out to visit him at, at his, the first iteration of his gym. I saw Alan and Rachel. It was just a little storefront and a little strip mall out there in Santa Clarita. And uh, he pointed to a woman on a treadmill and he said, um, uh, she's, a, she's a porn actress. <laughs> yeah. Actress. And I'm pretty sure, and I, that may even be a false memory. He may, I may be conflating a couple of other memories. But that would be a bad one to screw up. <laughs> That'd be a bad one to screw up. Hey, Alan's well, training well, points. No, but I, think, I think Alan would laugh at it. He, he would be able to correct the story. But uh, point being that you would have never noticed her. And of course, I wouldn't have noticed her anyway because I'm, you know, I was married then, and you know, watching porn something you don't do. Some, someone would recognize her, just not you. At least in my marriage, yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't have recognized her anyway. But he said that you know, even people who do watch porn wouldn't have recognized her without her makeup and wearing all these clothes and shit. So I think nowadays it'd be more likely with the the rise of the internet and pornography. The porn stars are like almost as famous as some actors at this point. Mm. So. <laughs> How do we get it? Why did you bring it here? Dean, your, Dean, your wife listens to this podcast. Well, so she tread, wouldn't, she tread wouldn't very dis- carefully. She wouldn't dis- no second, one, who's going to disagree with that? The second thing I was going to say was, well, you described kind of, you know, people going in there. And I remember when I, I've been to three of the fitness summits now. And the first time I went down, I met you. Um, I knew Dean Somerset because, uh, you know, he's a good friend here in Edmonton. And my friend Hannah Gray came with, with us. And then I met, you know, what felt like the core industry at that time. And I have so many friends and great people that I've gotten to know really well and I consider very good friends from that first year people like Johnny T or an Eric Bach who you know it's really fun to see you know how well a guy like Eric has done and Eric Bach Eric Bach was there in 2017 he was there he was there in 2017 I remember hanging out with him and Carter Good and Robbie Farlow all in uh, having scotch in uh, one of the hotel rooms and you see what what's happened to Carter's career as well and Robbie's done really well for himself but a lot of those people have gone on to do 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 more. And I mean, everybody just met me and I was complete nothing in the industry at that point. And 
I've had a lot of really good things happen in my career, you know, writing for T Nation now and various other stuff. You talk about quoting people. I mean, you asked me to contribute to a piece for the PTDC, so it's very much what's happened in my career. And the point of this is is not to pump my own tires. The point of this is to say anybody who is going to go to these events, uh, we're hosting one here in Edmonton very, very soon. Uh, there's an opportunity to meet and network people in the industry if you take advantage of it. Don't just sit there and just absorb well, the information, which is good, well, yeah. but... If you get in front of all these people and you meet people, treat the speakers that you know you kind of follow like normal human beings, but meet the other participants, meet the other uh, the attendees, because like you said, these people, some of them are really on that track to go further, and you can grow together, be inspired. And I found that event so inspiring, and it kickstarted me to do so much more in my career. This podcast is definitely in part because of that first time I was there. Stan Efferding was in the crowd when, the one year I went. <laughs> like... So I mean, in terms yeah, of, that was 2018, and right? that's that's as a participant. He's like one of the, he was well, he was one of the strongest people in the world at the time when he was participating in powerlifting. But he's still for his age, he has to be one of the most strongest dudes for his age. And like, oh, he's a monster, and he just came to listen, which is crazy at that point. Now, when we gave you some of the the stuff in advance, you got really excited about this next one. So, we, which one about the fads? Yeah. Oh yeah, we well. You said you like to rant, so we'll see. We'll see how ranty you can get. We've had some good rants on here. Sam Pogue probably. I know. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna sound like the conspiracy theorist with all the, <laughs> you know, all the threads and, and newspaper headlines tacked up on my wall and all these threads connecting. But I hope it's funny. Well, okay. So, our, but, our but you, you've been around for a while, so you've seen fads, trends, and fundamental shifts in our world, so the fitness world. Is there anything currently exciting that's trending that you believe is a little bit more than a temporary fad? And what if? Or what? If anything emerges, right, he already blew it. Try that one again. What? Is there really, anything currently is exciting? Little, is little more than a temporary fad? Completely changes the meaning. <laughs> I don't even. Now I'm lost. So see, we fucked up the big question. You fucked up the big question. So is there anything currently exciting and trending you believe is a little more than a temporary fad? And what if anything emerging now do you feel will be a major paradigm shift in how our business works, specifically the fitness industry? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the benefit of being my age, um, the only benefit is that I've seen everything come around twice already. Um, yeah, and forgotten most of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I started working out when I was 13 at a time when people thought it was ridiculous. And I, and I know I've, well, it's been a few years since I told this story on a, in, in an interview, but I used to, um, I would run to, to get in shape for high school football and I'd be out running and people would stop their cars and ask if I wanted to lift because they assume I must be going somewhere. <laughs> so telling people that I that I worked out just seemed like this, you know, it, it, it's it was such a strange thing. I can remember in high school football, um, one of my teammates came back in, came in, you know, after after a summer off, uh, off off school, came into you know August football practices. And uh, he was just, you know, he's pretty jacked. And so, you know, I, I was excited because we could work out together. This guy I really liked. And and I can remember my teammates saying, well, he didn't get that from lifting weights. He got it from throwing hay bales. And I should say this is a rural high school in, in, uh, it was in Festus, Missouri. So people thought, you know, all, all the cliche stuff that, that uh, you know, weightlifting makes you muscle bound, all that. Uh, makes you slow muscle bound. They didn't believe it did anything. They thought that bailing, throwing hay bales onto a truck, which is certainly exercise, 
they thought that that was how you got big and strong. It didn't have anything to do with all the damn food you ate after you threw those hay bales onto the truck. And the thing about working on a farm is they give you a lot of fucking food. So somebody who's throwing hay bales onto a truck, yeah, he's going to gain 20 pounds of muscle that summer. It's going to be 20 pounds because he eats so much. It's going to be muscle because he exercises so much. But it's not it's not resistance training. It's just repeated, you know, repeated hard activity with a caloric surplus. So, um, so that's where I, that's, that's where I started. Uh, and I was already working out by then joined my first commercial gym in 1980 when I, uh, graduated from college. So by the time I got a chance to work for a fitness magazine in 1992, I had already been in this world for a long time. I'd been working out in gyms for 12 years. And now the difference was that everybody was working out in gyms and people were interested in it. You could actually have a magazine that made money, um, talking about that. So, when we talk about trends, as I did this longer and, again, you know, was trying to figure out who had the best information, who didn't, I began to read more and more about the history of the industry, which I was became increasingly fascinated with. I'm kind of a history buff anyway in the, you know, sense that I read Wikipedia and, you know, popular you, histories and you shit. Are, you are part of history. I'm going to continue to make old jokes through the entire episode. So. <laughs> well, I, I've seen a lot of it. You, you are yeah. an historical figure already. Okay, please continue. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so... One of the fascinating things I discovered was that I wasn't just noticing cycles repeating themselves. History is cycles that repeat themselves. So here's one that is kind of, uh, I, I hope this one's entertaining. So white flour was invented in the late 19th century. And it just immediately did two important things. One, it made flour, uh, it gave it shelf life and made it transportable. So instead of flour going rancid because it was made from whole grains, they could grind all that out and they could bleach the flour and you'd have this nice white flour. So not only was it portable, not only did it last forever on your shelf unless the cockroaches got to it, but um, now for upper class people, it was acceptable because now they could have white bread, whereas brown bread and brown flour always look kind of dirty to them. Then you have this epidemic of constipation. And people, if you look at the early health gurus, you know, Bernard McFadden, um, uh, Sandow, you look at the, what people were writing about personal health back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, they were obsessed with constipation. So there was this guy named John Harvey Kellogg, who was a, uh, who, who was a physician and he was a, um, uh, uh, and also a doctor. And he had this famous clinic in Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, do you know what Battle Creek is known for? The reason that the, you, you may not be of an age, but growing up, if there was a TV commercial for breakfast cereal, it said, you know, from Battle Creek, Michigan, or product of Battle Creek, Michigan, it would say that on those cereal boxes. That's because Kellogg's and Post were based there. And the reason they were based there is because this guy, John Harvey Kellogg, accidentally invented cornflakes. And the reason he invented cornflakes was because um, he thought it would kill sex drive. Yeah. So he's right. got this guy who's a doctor. And what he does as a doctor is he treats these affluent people, and a lot of them come into his clinic constipated. And so he's giving them daily enemas. And he also is convinced that sex is like this, you know, massive societal impurity and he wants people to have less sex. So he invents fucking cornflakes to kill their sex drive. So now you got white flour, you got constipation, you got enemas, and you have cornflakes. You have breakfast cereal. Then 
what follows from that is um, at the same time, so this guy's a religious fanatic. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. You have this tremendous, what they what a, a, a academics call a clean living movement, which is this search, this quest for purity, not just individual purity by purging out your bowels every day with a fucking enema um, or eating cornflakes so you don't waste all your purity on, you know, sex. My God, you know, who wants that? Um, you now have public health advocates, including some of the earliest bodybuilding guys like Sandow, big public health advocate in the UK yeah. or what was uh, Great Britain back then, along with um, uh, in the US, Bernard McFadden, you know, famous bodybuilder and physical culturist and publisher. And these people are advocating for public health at the same time that the American political system, Teddy Roosevelt is, you know, the great progressive president. He establishes the national parks. He wants to have a better society, a better country that works for people. He also wasn't blow up a lot of shit. He, he liked war. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying that anybody here is perfect. Um, so, and, and then at the same time, you have this drive to um, make alcohol illegal. You have this drive for prohibition. That again, tied to religion, tied to sex, tied to constipation, all these things the where alcohol comes out as the, you know, as the villain of its time. And I'm not in it. And it caused tremendous social problems. I'm not saying it yeah. didn't. But along with that, the women who were advocating for temperance or who were advocating for prohibition, for temperance, the temperance movement, why were they women? Because they were the ones who took the brunt of the effects of alcohol because their men, if they were alcoholics, if they were spending their money, the women and children suffered. So it was the women who drove this. Um, and, of course, the churches drove this. And you end up 1920 simultaneously. Women get the right to vote, and liquor is made illegal. We have prohibition. Both these things happen in 1920, 1921 in the U.S. So that's the culmination of this big uh, drive for public health, this clean living movement. Uh, a lot of those effects are still with us today. Every time when the next big health and health and fitness and clean living and purity movement started in the 1960s, again you have crappy food and people are constipated and they know that they're doing something wrong and people are drinking and smoking. So this purity movement starts all over again, trying to solve the same problems the last purity movement um, set out to solve. Uh, and, and we repeat this whole cycle. Now the details are different every time, but, um, but the drive is the same to try to purify people. And so all these trends we have now uh, aren't necessarily related to constipation. More likely, they're related to the obesity epidemic. That's why we have all these crazy diets. But a lot of the reason we have these crazy diets is because of this idea that we can purify our bodies. We can purify our bodies if we don't have sugar. We can purify our bodies if we don't eat processed foods. You know, we can we can uh, we can purify our bodies if we fast for X number of hours a day. Weight loss is, is nice. That will follow if you eat less food and you eat less of this, of this terrible processed food. But we've taken things like, like a simple carbohydrate, like, well, actually sugar is a complex carbohydrate. Sorry, but you know, you, you know what I mean? Yep. We've, we've taken, you know, like fruits, a simple sugar. So we, we've, we've taken this quest for, um, to eat a healthier diet, which would mean eating less of these highly processed foods, including, you know, sugars and manufactured oils and all that. Um, and we've made it out to be this quest for purity, which is that these things aren't just unnecessary. They don't just lack nutrients. They don't just give you calories you don't need. 
they ruin your body. They make your body impure. And so we have to eliminate them. Um, we have to go on these long fasts uh, to purify our bodies by, you know, the same way that medieval monks used to whip themselves, you know, on the back because, oh my God, I woke up with a boner this morning. I got to purify. I got to get all those, got to get all those damn sex thoughts out of my head. So they'd be whipping themselves and, 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 you know, like wearing knives on their thighs so that they're constantly like in pain to remind themselves, don't have a boner tonight. Don't have a boner. tonight. And they wake up with a boner anyway and they start the whole process all over again. I didn't know that one. Have you seen the Da Vinci or read the Da Vinci Code? I've seen it. I've yeah. read it. So I don't. I, yes, I've, I've read it. I haven't seen it, so I don't know how much they portray it. But I guess one of the monks, oh, the bad he, guy, he does he, whip himself. He, he whips right. himself. He does a lot of this so sort of shit. One. Yeah. Oh yeah, and he's not just a monk; he's an albino monk. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Now we're back to white flower, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. This is. I, I get so, what you're saying. Basically, it started with corn. But really, the, it, yeah, it started I, with corn. Like, it's, it's like I go into all that, and you're like, "Hi, I think I, I think I followed that." So yeah. I guess I failed. Well, um, of course, apparently Dean's dog Penny objected to it because she just had a little meltdown. So you guys probably heard the the squawking and howling there. So yeah, she's like, "No, cornflakes are fine." <laughs> like, no, she's just constipated. They don't kill that, your sex drive. The you know the she, neutering me that killed my sex drive. But no, but it's funny because like that even with the Sandow thing and the white like that was it was that 1920s. So we're still like that's all just come around again. Like alcohol's been a big thing, but in the last three years sugar and all this shit. That's like every like, every year. No, there's it comes there's up. always something. Somebody emerging fitness professional <laughs> has decided to go all in on this is bad. Right. And I have the solution, the simple solution. And right. know, uh, carbohydrates have been demonized, fats have been demonized, gluten is routinely demonized more and more now. Right. Uh, right. All of these sort of things. So it comes in cycles. And, they just have more ammo now. So, like, would you agree? Like, because now with research and science, they can skew it to fit their narrative almost. So that we almost see these arguments a lot more often with a little bit better. Of a backing, if that makes sense, for the people that want to use it. I don't think they. I don't think they have. No. I mean, there's more of everything right now. That's there's true. More media. There's more. Um, there's more science. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I get emails. I mean, they come in waves, but sometimes I'll be getting, I don't know how many dozens of them in a month, asking Dr. Schuler to come speak at some, you know, biology conference or you know something like that, and I got on there. Well, I, I won't go into detail about how I got onto their onto their radar, but once you're on their radar, they just pester you forever with. And so these people are throwing these bogus conferences. They, you, you know, they, we know that there's bogus uh, journals out there where basically they'll they'll publish anything. They don't even read these these uh, <laughs> studies, alleged studies that, that they're publishing. And every now and then, a genuinely fraudulent study will make it into a, a legitimate you know, peer reviewed journal, but it's, but when it's retracted, it's retracted with like, it's, you know, with, with like nuclear warheads retraction where it's not, you know, where they, where they pull it, they fall on their swords. We're so sorry. We did this to you. Um, so science I think is self-correcting mm -hmm. and I think any legitimate scientist will tell you, um, science doesn't come to conclusion, you know, science, there's never a final answer. There's always, here's what we know now. Here's what we used to know. Here's what we will investigate in the future and hope to know better as we go along. But nobody's ever going to have the final answer because humans keep changing and, you know, and, and technology keeps changing and we find things we didn't find before. So um, I'm not too worried about the science supporting bad 
bad um, practices or supporting people's personal belief systems. I think that's more about the people themselves finding the most obscure uh, science. And sometimes, as others who are much smarter than me have 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 shown. Sometimes people's references don't actually say what the people claim they say. I mean, it, I, I started noticing this in political writing, where if somebody wants to write a, um, you know, you know, it, it wants to condemn somebody, they'll have like, you know, they might have like uh, hundreds of references in their book, but when people go to check their books, they realize, hey, these references are just, you know, they, all they did was it's just a, it's just a headline of an article that doesn't look like they even read it because the article doesn't say what they think it says. Um, one point there. I, I, I trust everything you're saying is true, but I want clarification. Is there any good research back in coffee enemas? Because that came back around too. Uh, They're actually you know, I, I'm not. I'm not. I, I have not updated um, uh, my knowledge of the literature on coffee enemas, and I apologize because I, I know. Again, I should have known you guys would want to talk about that. Well, yeah, because like I, I didn't want to until you told me that it started at all. And now, yeah. now I'm thinking, like, that's why I got so big. Because, like, I think Joe but, Rogan blew it up. But it was, actual, like, actually big. Somebody who's actually concerned about purity probably wouldn't use coffee in the enema. Because <laughs> yeah. caffeine is one of those things that people try to, you know, that's try true. to purge from themselves. No caffeine, no alcohol. That's not the purity uh, crowd. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, damn purity crowd. Yeah. This, this has been awesome. Like, just even the fact that you've tied that all together means that, like, you've been around. Like, I couldn't have done that. Like my, but my just, just for the record, I was not around in the late 19th century when. That's when, true, but you're very interested in you, it. You certainly made it sound like it. You made it sound like you were the you're, editor for all those early. Uh, but articles. see, this is why I read history: is that if I'm reading something really good, I can just sort of transport myself back there and try to imagine what it'd be like to wear those uncomfortable clothes. You know, those itchy wool clothes and to, you know, never go outside your door without a three-piece suit and a hat. You know, no matter how hot it is. Could you imagine? And, though? Like, yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine though being there and then like thinking cornflakes is the answer? Or, like I gotta get my anima. Like and having no other knowledge than like the big headwigs are like you, you have to do. Can that. you imagine being here today and believing the Earth is flat and all of the other ridiculous bullshit that's, that's being circulated around? It's no true. different today that's than true. it is. There's just as much ignorance floating around, and that ties in with kind of what I want to go to next is the source of a lot of all this bullshit is the internet, or at least the way that internet spreads these things. So it's really hard to anticipate major trends or technologies. I don't think anyone would have been able to, in the fitness industry of the 80s or even the 90s, have anticipated what the internet has done to our industry. So I wonder if there have any, you know, you've been around long enough to see major, you know, shifts in things. I wonder if there's anything you really fail to anticipate. And is there anything that failed to happen that you felt sure would in the industry or just anything, any trends along those lines that just surprised you either that did happen or didn't happen. Um, all right. So I'm going to go back in history a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, I can remember when the first kid in my class in, uh, maybe third grade, first kid in the class whose family got a color TV and he came to class and we all gathered around and he told us what Batman's costume looks like, Batman and Robin, what, what colors their costumes were in color. We had no idea because we just had black and white TVs. So I can remember um, growing up, we had three networks and PBS. And then there was one thing on what was called the uh, 
the UHF band where it was just like they sold old, you know, old Popeye reruns and three stooges and stuff. Um, so that's what I grew up with, you know, basically five channels and then a sixth channel was like a big deal. I can remember remote controls, the first ones. So when I got to college in the uh, late 1970s, so I went, you know, when I went into journalism school, uh, we worked on what they called VDTs, which were the first. These were the first computers inside newsrooms. And, and all they thought that these things would be good for was processing copies. So they called them video display terminals. And there was like a, um, you know, there was an internal network. Obviously, there was no Internet, so nothing was connected on the outside. But what they told us in journalism school, which turned out to be completely true and nobody understood how true it would be, was they said broadcasting is going to be dead in your career. So we, we would graduate in 1979 uh, by, you know, by the time we start our careers in the 1980s, broadcasting will be dying. And what people are going to do instead is narrow casting. Now, we thought it applied to cable TV, which was already starting to happen, and to publishing. So that's a reason why when I got to um, – when I got to Men's Fitness Magazine in the early 90s, and I realized that there was such a thing as writing about fitness, I looked at that and I thought back to what I learned in journalism school. And I thought, oh, so this is narrow casting only in publishing. We're going to go to this niche market. And we're going to appeal to this niche market. And this is an actual business. This isn't just like some fad. So um, the Internet, of course, I didn't anticipate. I can remember when we got email at Men's Fitness Magazine, and it was like for the first time, it felt like every day I went home with more work than when I got there. And it was just like this overwhelming thing. And I know it wasn't overnight, but it just felt it happened so fast. Once readers figured out that we had email and they could contact us directly, um, all of a sudden it just felt like our, our workloads had, I, I don't want to say doubled, but they, they had just increased in this really dramatic way. And I think that stress, that feeling of you always go home with more work, that you're always tempted once we had email on our phones, that, you know, we were we were always tempted to just work every waking hour. That all I, I can remember when that all started. So that was something I didn't anticipate. I, I had no idea. I can even remember uh, in grad school in the early 1990s, one of my classmates who was who was the tech guy had, you know, wrote for like business magazines and stuff. He had uh, email and I remember being fascinated by this. It was like, wow, how does this work? So you just like type this and then you hit send and it goes to somebody somewhere else. Yeah. What else is good for? I don't know. I mean, what do you guys talk about? Well, I don't know. Because we, you, know, you have these old <laughs> dial up modems. So the only, you know, basically it was just we're, we're emailing each other because we can. It would be much more efficient to just pick up the phone and talk to each other. It'd be much faster and we'd have more detailed conversations. So I can remember the, the start of all these things. And of course, I didn't anticipate where they were going to go. Now, one thing I, I do take some pride in is that I understood. I saw the benefits of exercise and I saw the potential of it. And I thought other people would catch on to this. And they did. Um, when it became, when it hit critical mass, I was able to make a living in it. I didn't anticipate that, but once I got there, it was like, oh, this exists, this can grow, I can stay with this. And that's how I probably the most prescient thing I did was I became among the first, if not the first, conventionally trained journalists who got into, uh, who got into in, in fitness specifically and took it seriously enough 
that I became part of the fitness industry uh, while still being a journalist and still following all the rules of the profession. Other, lots of others did later, um, but I, I think I was among the first, and I, and I take some pride into seeing the potential of that. Um, but other things, you know, when I, when I hear these nutrition fads, I'm not really in the loop with what the kids are doing uh, and what people are arguing about, but I hear these things and I'm just like, why? why, why, why would you do this to yourself? Why would you go on this super restrictive diet when you don't have a disease that the super restrictive diet was, was, was invented for? Why would you go on a keto diet when you don't have epilepsy? You don't need a keto diet. Why would you do that to yourself? And people, I, I have to say, and I can't back this up with research. I don't know if the research is out there. But I see these extreme diets, and I wonder if future generations are going to understand that these were all signs of eating disorders, that people were inflicting eating disorders on themselves or masking eating disorders by pretending to be, you know, by, by following a fad diet. So if somebody has that tendency anyway, if they already have an eating disorder, maybe that fad diet makes it legitimate and makes it acceptable. Now, that said, I also didn't anticipate that there will be websites out there for women with, with anorexia uh, where they actually celebrate, it. you know, where it's like in this cool, we got, we, you know, we all got, you know, what they call pro ani or something, A-N-I. Is that real? You know, or, yeah. So I, I obviously <laughs> didn't anticipate that the Internet, since I didn't anticipate the Internet itself, I didn't anticipate that it would be <laughs> such a cesspool of, of, uh, uh, of, of encouraging the worst um aspects of not only our, our psychology, but of our politics and everything else. Do you, do you remember the point in which um, you said fitness hit critical mass, but was there a point where it started reaching its true potential? Because like it obviously would have built up and now it feels like it blew up. Do you remember the point in which it just yes. kind of took off even more yep. than the internet? I remember the exact moment. It was 1976 and I'm sitting in a movie theater and I'm watching the first Rocky movie. And Rocky takes off his shirt. Now, Rocky was, you know, Stallone in 1976 was not, he was not, you know, he was not Andrew Coates jacked. You know, he wasn't Dean Guido jacked. No. He was, just looked like a guy who worked out. So he pulls off his, he pulls off his sweater and he's got a wife beater. And you could hear everybody in the theater go, <gasps> you know, all the guys are like, whoa. And all the women are like, oh. And that was the moment. And by 1980, by the early 1980s, Arnold Schwarzenegger's a, the biggest movie star in the world. By the early 1980s, um, that was it. You would see all of a sudden guy, a guy like Harrison Ford, who was just a regular looking dude, and that was why he was popular. You see him in movies, and all of a sudden he's jacked. You know, he's got abs, he's got, you know, packs and all this. And at that point, every movie star had to be in shape. Um, and back in the day, so can I tell you? Uh, Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll sidetrack myself. When I worked at Men's Fitness, Joe Weeder, it was his magazine. He had all these old buddies, and there was this one guy named Bob Dale Montique. And uh, Bob was, you know, so old school that because he was one of the few guys in LA who worked out and understood fitness, um, the movie studios used to hire him to get their movie stars in shape. And the problem with movie stars back then was that their job was to go out to nightclubs and be seen. So these people were just drinking, 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 drinking. So Bob would have to, would, sometimes he'd have like a week to get these guys dried out. And <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, you know, he knew he couldn't, he couldn't do an actual, you know, periodized during the conditioning routine with these guys or however he would have described that then. So he, he told me, he said, yeah, we just had to, you know, 
we just had to give them amphetamines and that, <laughs> that's how, that's how we got these that's how we got these drunkards in shape for the, wow. for their movies so they didn't look like absolute shit on the screen so um where uh i can't remember exactly where i was going before i sidetracked myself there um but i'm sure there was a there was a point somewhere and i hope i made it yeah it was just they kind of tied it together in the sense that like I connect fitness with the internet and articles and that's how I grew up finding information. But back right. then it would have been movies because you didn't yeah. know people could be that Jack cause it wasn't normal. And then when you see it, you're like, Holy right. shit, that makes sense. But that would have made sense. Cause that's where everyone would have piled in to see the Rocky movie. And it's like, now it's right. on the stage because there was no right. internet. There was, it was like, that was where everyone, that was popular culture. The sense of every, I think people forget how pervasive everything is information through the internet that, what it was like to live without it. Uh, examples when music videos were still yeah. on MTV or we had much, we had much music in Canada yeah. instead of like 16 and pregnant and all these other stupid fucking shows. Yeah. Uh, and the way that we consumed music was different. We watch, you would listen to the radio and you would wait for yeah. a song you wanted. And I remember taping, using yeah. a tape deck to tape songs off the radio. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that goes back a bit. So anyone who's like 23 or 24 is going to be listening, going, really? What the fuck? Um, this is like even before CDs. Well, you'd obviously go to the record you could, store. You couldn't just download it for free? You couldn't download it for free. You go to the record store and you pay 20 bucks for a CD or a tape or, a, or an album, a record. Yeah. Um, or you would wait and you'd sit in front of much music and hope that something interesting would come on. Uh, now, I mean, you can go to YouTube and listen to anything anytime you want. Uh, you can download, you have a streaming service like Apple or Spotify or uh, SoundCloud. You just look up a song and you can get it instantly. So yeah. that's all very, very different. There's just a ubiquity to information now that wasn't present before. Right. And it makes sense that the information we were getting about fitness was distilled down through only a few mediums. Uh, fitness magazines was a major one. Right. Uh, and then the images of people in Hollywood. And then just the, the things that the guys, the older guys told you in the gym, you just simply couldn't point and click and search for something the way that uh, you easily can now. So things have changed a lot. It was probably better back then. Was it better back then? I guess you have you can compare and contrast. Yeah, I, 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 like, I, like, I like the internet. I yeah. like being able to, if, if somebody tells you something that's absolute bullshit, you know, you can, yeah. you, you can do, you know, you, you, can, you can find out why it's bullshit learn where the person got the the bullshit information um you have to be you know you 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 have to have some discipline because it's all it's it's easy to fall at fall into rabbit holes that just confirm whatever bullshit you want to believe like we were talking about earlier people find bogus studies they'll claim studies say things they don't say uh they'll you know tear apart legitimate experts um they'll find the smallest flaw in in, in, in an argument and pretend that invalidates the entire thing. You know, it's, 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 there, there's all these, there's this arguing style that I didn't, um, we didn't experience offline this really aggressive style. Like, can you imagine you're, you're in an office and you're talking about something and somebody disagrees with you? Um, are they going to go right to, well, that just shows how fucking stupid you are. What a goddamn moron. Where'd you get that? You trusted this guy. Well, here's this guy I trusted, you know, and you would never talk to a human being like that. And even in the early days of the internet, that wasn't the norm. But I think that people who were outrageous were entertaining and people followed them. And then it just, it all went downhill from there. 
You want to see some really funny stuff like that? Go on to Spencer Dodalski's Instagram and oh, anytime man. he posts stuff and see some of the the outrageous bullshit people respond with. And Spencer has fun with it. He just likes to post the ridiculous comments. Well, at this point, he's going more ridiculous because it's going to be stupid comments regardless. Because <laughs> before it was kind of informative and now it's just he's making fun of people. <laughs> like today, the, this one is bad. But did you see the one today? No. He posts like a funeral and they're like saying, oh, God bless. Does anyone have anything to say as the casket's going down? Oh, yeah. I and the that. one guy's like, I'm vegan. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, Spencer. So I don't know. It's just that he, whole idea. He's he's got a lot of credibility, so he's really good at pushing people's buttons. I enjoy. Wait, I don't, I don't I don't get it. What, who who said I'm oh. vegan? I'm in casket. So they they had like a, two pictures, the same picture. One was the casket going in, and a bunch of people. And the priest is like, "Does anyone have anything to say?" And this one guy has his head down. On the next picture is like, "I'm vegan." <laughs> just, it's, it's the way that vegans or CrossFitters or they have to say they're vegan. Oh, oh I, they, oh, right, they, right, they right, have right, to yeah. tell but you was, what they do. It was so. pretty dark though. That was. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's. I felt bad laughing, um, <laughs> but like those are the best I, jokes. I sometimes it's I just. Didn't, I didn't feel bad at all. Yeah, we won't get into that rabbit hole about dark humor on the internet and fitness. Even um, this kind of comes back and ties everything together. You spend your time curating the work and ideas of other fitness professionals. Would you kind of share some of your personal wisdom about helping to better the lives of our clients and followers, just based on your time in this industry? Because I think it's valuable for people to hear kind of your tidbits. The most important advice, and this is, this is, this is the, whatever the opposite of profound is. I mean, this is about as obvious, but sometimes I don't think it's as obvious as it should be is that you have to be good at what you do before you can help people. You can't help people if you yourself don't know what you're doing. And you might be good at, you, you might be good at marketing, uh, but eventually you'll, you'll get exposed and, hopefully the audience will figure out you don't know what you're talking about. Um, so the best advice I, I can give people, and I've given to this to I don't know how many people over the years, is focus on becoming better at what you do. Everybody that I've worked with has spent years you know, learning and developing their craft before any, any of the rest of us ever heard of them. And now there's this idea that if you're, you know, 21, 23, you know, you got to be famous right away. You got to have a half million followers on Instagram right away. You know, you got to have this marketing funnel right away. And the thing is, you don't have anything to market. You don't have anything to say. You know, you might have, you, you, you might be a prodigy and you might be ahead of where the typical 21 or 23 year old is, is. But that doesn't mean that you have anywhere near enough uh, skill, knowledge. You certainly don't have perspective. You couldn't have the experience at 21. Like, for example, all right, here's an example. Joe Weider used to claim, you know, he was like trainer or champion since whatever it was, 1936. Or, and then if you did the math, it was like, well, Joe would have been like 14. And he claims he was a trainer of champions when he was like fucking 14. So why? <laughs> how, did, how would that work? Well, maybe he was maybe he was talking about training himself. Maybe he was talking about training somebody else who was, you know, who went on to do something or maybe he just completely made it up. I don't know. But the point was, you couldn't have been good enough to train champions. If somebody became a champion, it would have been a happy accident. But you certainly weren't good enough at this age, 14 or 15 years old to do these things. And I think. You know, he would use that as his claim to le le to um, to legitimacy.
but the thing is, he was he was certainly ambitious and he was certainly street smart, um, and he certainly uh, ha- had this kind of um, uh, raw, uh, you know, just this this is sort so it seemed to be just an instinct for self promotion and and for figuring out what the next thing is and rising up. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have the same long curve as everybody else to figure out how these things worked. Because when he started off, he was he had this idea that, you know, he, he used to write fan letters to Bob Hoffman and Bob Hoffman was make, would just make fun of him, blow him off. And so what, what did Weeder do? He went up and and he, you know, Weeder had been this Olympic lifting guy. And, you know, as Hoffman was, Bob Hoffman of Strength and Health magazine, York Barbell, you know. He was a U.S. Olympic weightlifting coach back when we used to win gold medals in, in Olympic weightlifting. So he blows off Weeder, makes fun of bodybuilding, uses all these, you know, does all this, you know, homophobic shit, you know, against against Weeder. I guess they make fun of him for being Jewish and, and all this stuff. And so what, what does Weeder do? He's got a clear open field and he owns bodybuilding. He owns the Mr. Olympia. He owns the magazines. He owns the supplements. He owns the entire goddamn industry. And they left it to him in the 1960s because they, they, you know, Hoffman wanted, you know, macho dude wanted to score points. And he just left, he, he left bodybuilding completely undefended, whereas he had every advantage he owned. He was the top guy and he just let this guy coming up. He didn't anticipate that this guy coming up would, would eventually own everything that Hoffman owned. And no he one knows who the fuck Hoffman is. Right? I've never heard of Hoffman before, right? No one knows really? who the fuck this guy is. Bob Hoffman? Yeah. You've heard of John Grimmick, right? Nope. John Grimmick? No. Famous sure. bodybuilder from the 1940s? That No, actually, that's not a name I've heard. There's a lot of the classic ones I have, but Hoffman, I've never heard of. Just ultimately the point, you know, that is the fact that Joe Weider... Anyone who's been around bodybuilding at all knows who Joe Weider is. Joe right. Joe is, is, as you said, profoundly influential. He is the man who brought Arnold Schwarzenegger to America right. and largely created and promoted Arnold into what he is. And if you want to think about it this way, we probably don't have commercial gyms everywhere the same way without Arnold Schwarzenegger. And as you talked about, you know, Stallone in the 80s and his rise in movies. But Arnold was fitness. And Arnold was one of the most pivotal figures in bringing fitness from... Uh, just straight Hollywood and, and bodybuilding is just this sort of like sideshow niche thing into the purest mainstream uh, appeal. Well, I'll push back on that a little bit. I think yeah. what 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 did it was Muscle Beach. Um, I think that uh, in the nineteen in the nineteen forties, nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, especially um, these guys all went out to Muscle Beach, and that's where they learned. Um, that's where they saw the future. So there's this guy, his name is completely lost to, uh, lost to history. His name is Vic Tanny. And he was one of those muscle beach guys. He was one of the lifters there. And, you know, Jack LaLanne was there. And, uh, um, a lot of people who would have been, you know, who would have been brand name. Joe Gold was down there at Gold's gym. So these guys are all down there. And Jack LaLanne has tried to start his, his own gym. And Joe Gold has started his own gym. And Vic Tanny, figured out that you could franchise gyms and it was it was a ponzi scheme i mean it was it was a pyramid scheme it was uh he he, he it was it was all you know kind of a but he would he would build these gyms with all this chrome and mirrors and he put chandeliers and some of his early gyms had like fucking bowling alleys in them so he just had this idea that people would work out if they could go to like this really cool um place that didn't feel like a sweaty gym like you know yeah. like uh uh certainly gold's gym you know, in Venice Beach would have felt like that 
um, to somebody. That, I mean, all these bodybuilders worked out at a place called The Dungeon in Santa Monica, so um, <laughs> which I think it was run by Tanny's brother, Armand, who worked for Joe Weider later. So Weider came out. He saw all these guys uh, at Muscle Beach. I think that I think pretty much everybody made a pilgrimage to Muscle Beach. Uh, Bob Hoffman in his Strength and Health magazine, he had all these Muscle Beach people and he helped popularize it because his magazine was really popular. So you've so from this Muscle Beach scene, this is where the American servicemen are passing through, coming through Los Angeles, a lot of cases going overseas, coming back from overseas uh, before, during and after World War II. And they see this and they see people, for example, like um, they see this thing, this weight bench. And they see people doing bench presses. Well, even people who worked out hadn't seen anybody doing a bench. Had not many people had seen anybody doing a bench press. Because back then, if you wanted to do a bench press, two guys had to pick up the bar and, and hand it to you, or else you you would lay on the floor and you would bump your hips, put the barbell on your hips. So this is long before Brett Contreras, right? But this isn't what Brett had in mind. So they would thrust their hips up, they would bounce the barbell, they would catch it, and then they would do floor presses. And so that's and so these guys and so now you have out there in California you have the first the first benches and once we have the first benches then we get powerlifting so now we have powerlifting and bodybuilding coming out of um, uh, coming coming out of Muscle Beach whereas before that everything had been on the East Coast in York Pennsylvania that's where the you know the center of that's where York Barbell was and that was the center of American weightlifting was the York Barbell team. These guys would, you know, like I said, these guys would win gold medals back before the Russians figured out steroids. And that's actually where they figured out steroids. It was a guy in New Jersey who was a doctor for the Olympic team that figured that out. And that happened in the late 50s, 1960s. So I won't go down that rabbit hole. But um, that's where Vic Tanny comes up with this idea of franchise gyms. And eventually, thanks to Stallone and Schwarzenegger, uh, Joe Weider. Now we get to gym, uh, a gym culture that actually sticks. So the first gym I worked out in, I joined in 1980, was actually called Vic Tanny. And then it became, um, I think it became Bally Total Fitness before that completely collapsed and again, lost to the dustbin of history. And now you've got LA Fitness and, you know, Equinox and all these golds became a franchise long after Joe Gold was out of the picture. Uh, the guy who invented the universal machine uh, universal multi-station gym yeah. that was another that was another muscle beach guy so everything that we consider part of gym culture now comes out of that um and uh, you know including the, the the personalities and that's where the real legacy uh the, the modern legacy is the ground zero of it all this is right. like, this is like completely informative. You need so, to do like a document. You need someone to like do a documentary on it. Lou, you probably should write a book about all this history stuff. Now we're talking <laughs> about writing and reading, so you know it's. Hold on, let me see here. All right, um, do you, you you're always reading submissions constantly? So you're actually reading a lot of other people's stuff, but do you still find time to read interest stuff for yourself? It sounds like you do, and. You know, you've read, you would have read a lot over the years. Are there is there a book or two that you feel everyone, you know, industries people certainly, but maybe enthusiasts would get a lot out of by reading it? Wow, just one, huh? Um, you can have two. I can have Here's two. Like, if, if you get me five, we'll be on the air for another half an hour. I know it. So I, I can tell you, I can tell you books that changed my uh, perspective. That'd be, that'd Perfect. Be good. That'd be great. 
There's one called American Nations, which is um, which is about immigration in North America and uh, basically how we all ended up where we are and why people from different parts of the country to this day see the world differently than people from other parts of. And I should say it's all North America includes, you know, um, Mexico and, and Canada in there. So that's one that if you want to understand how the world works, that's a uh, that's a great one. Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, of of something that's more health and fitness health, health and fitness related that really changed my point of view. And the thing is that everything it doesn't everything really- I read seems to be a part of the bigger picture. And I'm trying to think of something that's the actual. You know, that, that, that gives you a sense of the entire mosaic that's not just like a straight out history book. I don't know. If there really, I don't know if there really would be one. And it doesn't necessarily need to be confined to fitness and what have you, because, you know, like we've had people on here who have we've had conversations. I think one a conversation we have with John Romanello, and I know he talked about this in another podcast I'd heard was, you know, the significance of Harry Potter and what it did for ch- childhood voluntary reading, how the first Harry Potter oh. book had single-handedly reversed that trend or just right. being so in tune with what's popular and what your clientele may be interested in, not being so one-dimensional that all you know is fitness, but just being knowledgeable about a broader array of things. Therefore, you could have interesting conversation with people so that way it's not always about the technical aspects of, of training and nutrition. So, uh, and, and then, you know, when it comes to writing, is it's an interest of mine, certainly, and certainly it's what you built a career on you're not going to be the best writer if all you read is technical writing in your field, experiencing a broader array of good literature. And that's another thing Romanello talks about. He'll often talk about Hemingway as one of his favorite authors and, you know, how skilled a writer someone like Hemingway is. So exposing yourself to a broader array of literature is just simply going to make you a better writer for those people who are interested in that sort of thing. Oh, sure. And that's one thing. I, I um, recently interviewed Chad Landers for an article that hasn't been published yet, uh, uh, among many other people in that article. And that's one of the things he said he advised personal trainers is be interesting. Yeah. You know, yes. if if all if you're just a meathead and all you can talk about is meathead stuff, people aren't going to want to be with you for two, three hours a week. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to they're not going to enjoy that, even if they're getting results. And he said probably the best thing a trainer can do is is uh, is travel. Get out, get out of your city, you know, and, and granted now, to say this and somebody who's 23 years old yeah. and, you know, they're and they're just struggling to make a living and move ahead in the in the in the fitness industry. They're gonna be like, well, how the fuck do I travel? You know, take a couple of days off, get in your car, go somewhere, just hang out with some people uh, and maybe not your essentially broaden, broaden, broaden your horizons. Well, no one, I can't remember where I read this, but it's true is that usually the people you're training don't care about the specifics of the training. Like they didn't come here to learn about biomechanics of a split squat. And even though you're super passionate about that and that's your simple story as a trainer, like if that's all you got, you got, that's going to be a long hour and they're probably not going to come back. You need to just even do something. A couple of my clients are really into world of Warcraft and I used to play it. I wrote an article kind of about those days, uh, and though now they just released Classic WoW, so the original game has been brought back to experience in its original form. So, you know, those guys are really excited about this stuff. So that's something that we were talking about a lot in their sessions because they're, most of their movement patterns are pretty good. So there's not necessarily a whole lot of learning and, and building going on there. So we're finding out one guy's leveling up. I think he's got a level 15 paladin or some shit like this. I don't know. So 
Uh, I take it that's good. <laughs> well, he did level 15 in one day, and that's actually pretty good. So, uh, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. But even just having something else, and I think, like you said, traveling, but like you could do whatever. Like, go go join a bowling league. I don't care. Like, meet other people that have those experiences, because at the very end of the day, you can just steal their stories and just lie. Mm. Well, and also, I mean, I, I remember uh, Alan Cosgrove went out to um, Toastmasters to learn how to... Um, uh, uh, do public speak, do, to learn to be an effective public speaker. Now he, uh, this last, uh, uh, this current year, uh, he was a keynote speaker on the Perform Better Tour. Um, all, but when you go to something like that, or when you yeah. join the Chamber of Commerce or whatever it is, if you're a gym owner, um, you meet the people who are like the people who would come to you for training. Yeah. And when you know those people and you can, you have a frame of reference for them outside of the gym, um, you probably will be able to get more referrals, more people um, who feel like you understand them, even if they don't understand what you know about their physiology. Uh, they don't like you, like Dean said, you, you don't need to. Yeah, no they don't. They don't need. They don't need to know that. It's important that you know that. And I, I should say, all the stuff we're talking about does not supersede knowledge and experience. Those are the two most important things is being good at what you do. And again, a process that can't be rushed. Uh, some people catch on and figure it out faster than others. But as long as you're improving, it doesn't matter how fast other people improve. What matters is that you're getting better and figuring stuff out um, and that you pass on and that that benefit extends to the people you train and whatever happens after that happens, but first that has to happen. First you have to get you you have to be competent, then you have to be good, then you have to be better, and then you have to be great. And at that point, yeah, I'd like to know you. Well, and then just to tie that all together, I think that you said that was the very first thing about people in the you have to be good at what you do. But the hope is that the the generation coming up, the twenties, the twenty ones, the whatever, early twenties, that they're learning from the people that are in their 40s, 50s, 60s that learned all that. And by the time they're 40, 50, 60, they, they are at a way higher level. And everyone expects at 20 to be there. And you still got, you got to walk, you got to ways, you got to put in the work. And I think oh, that, absolutely. That gets, so somebody, yes. like you said, somebody at 30, thanks to all this knowledge that's out there now, if they know how to filter it out and if they are, you know, if they're disciplined about how they go about uh, uh, finding it and processing it, Somebody at 30 could be where it would have taken somebody until they were 40 to be able to do. Um, I can remember John Berardi talking about how when he started off, I think it was John. I, I hope I'm not misquoting somebody else. I'm pretty sure it was John Berardi said when he was starting off, um, the way that you became a well-known fitness pro was you basically were on the road presenting um, and, and doing seminars like 50 weekends a year and you never saw your family but that's how you made money and that's how you got out and made a name for yourself. Nowadays, you, you know, you can do that virtually. You don't need to leave your house, you know, more than a couple times a year to actually network with people in, in person. And the rest of the time, you really can build relationships online, which is why I'm a big fan of the Internet, despite all its uh, obvious drawbacks. And this is a perfect segue to we ask everyone this, but you tend to, to place the PTTC ahead of yourself as a brand. But where can our listeners find you online and experience more of Lou? Uh, well, I used to send people to my website. I, I don't know if there's any point in that. Um, you know, Facebook uh, is is kind of like if I have something to say that's just me, that's where I'll say it. Um, but again, 
because I work for John at the PTDC, I uh, I censor myself relentlessly. So you know, the, un- the un- people people this this is one of the few times people get the the the, uh, um, the unfiltered Lou is is when when I do a podcast like this, or you know, sometimes when I write a longer article. But um, I've sort of uh, I'm definitely on the sidelines with all the arguments going on now. Um, so yeah, they, they want to know my background. <clears throat> my website's great, actually. Um, you know, or, or, you know, if they go to the PTDC, go to, uh, you know, click on my bio there, sort of sums everything up in a few sentences, and then they can read my articles and, you know, find all the links from there. But yeah, I would start at the PTDC at my, at my author page. Watch now, I'll get a phone call from John going, what the fuck were you thinking putting Lou, I said Lou loose on the fucking air like this shit, talking about coffee enemas. Um, we started it with we, the. He started with the porn star. We, it didn't we, even start yeah, there. We we had. Oh, John. well, technically, I started with white flower. Didn't yeah, I? that's yeah. true. If, if actually, so we mentioned a few names to this one, and I like pointing this stuff out. So if if you're someone who's kind of more fo- following Lou and you're newer to finding us or the first time ever, we've had John Goodman on the podcast uh, quite a while ago. It's a really good episode, so you might want to scroll back and check that one out. We've had another one of your guys, Donnie Singer, on. And then you mentioned a guy like Chad Landers. Chad's been on. He's a great friend. He's a world-class person and world-class fitness professional. And we've thrown out a bunch of other names. So, you know, if you actually scroll back through what we've done, we're just a little over 100 episodes now. And there's a lot of really cool people. There'll be something there for you, um, be it strength and conditioning guys like uh, Christian Thibodeau or uh, Brett Contreras. We've got one of the best episodes we ever did was with Brett Contreras. You mentioned Brett. Or some really good soul stuff like Kelly Coffee and a lot of her experience with, uh, you know, training people addiction and obesity and, and you name it. Kelly's really a vibrant personality. So hopefully you guys dig through our archives. We've got some really great stuff. Lou, thanks for coming on. It was a real pleasure to catch up with you. So big question. I'm going to put you on the air and you can shut me up if you want, but what are the plans for uh, the uh, fitness summit in uh, two, well, 2020? Have you guys uh, made anything concrete yet? Um. I can't make an official announcement. Yep. Uh, but we are definitely planning to do the fitness summit in 2020. Great. And all right, you know what? I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll and I'll just and I and I apologize to Nick Romberg for spilling the <laughs> so, so you guys are literally the first to know. Is that as of now, we think this is going to be the last one. Oh wow! So we're hoping that. Um, we have a big turnout for our for our last time out where um, we haven't even begun to uh, uh, approach speakers yet. But we want to make sure that the last one is the one that people remember um, and that uh, they remember us for the right reasons um, and not for uh, some of the other stuff. Yeah, throw a big bash. So, I mean, it's, it's well, going to be a massive priority for me. It's, it, it changed my career going there. Uh, so and much. Mine, and mine too. Yeah, and because I pulled you down the next year, I mean, like things exploded. You got linked up with Stronger You and Mike T. Nelson, a lot of good people, and it's it's been so Im- influential that now because we want to bring more of the benefits of these kind of events, Dean and I partnered up with Dean Somerset and uh, a couple of our other team to have the Evolve Canadian Strength Symposium. So that's September. But to 14th do that here, here because it, yeah. it's, it's 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 you can't replicate it, and I don't even think we'll be able to. But it's that idea of. Like you said, the good things is the event itself and not just the speakers. It's the whole fucking thing. Yeah. And, and yeah. we've seen the growth of more great events like uh, Tim Arndt's uh, Inland Empire Conference, which happens very close to the Fitness Summit. Um, and he's been doing a world-class job. He's an amazing host, makes everybody feel like a, a t- 
total uh, VIP. Uh, and there's more. We have a bunch of minor stuff here coming up in Alberta but as well. I would say Andrew's mentioned, you guys, 90 out of the 100 episodes. Absolutely. <laughs> At least and, and, and thank you. Thank you for doing that. And I, and I think there's a good reason for it is that, you know, we talk, you, you mentioned, we've mentioned Brett Contreras a couple times. The first presentation he ever gave was at the Fitness Summit in 2010. He had literally never gotten up in front of, he'd, he'd been a school teacher, <laughs> so he'd been up in front of people, but he had never given a presentation at a, at a, at a fitness event. So we've had a lot of people who um, nobody had heard of when they showed up. Um, a lot of people like Dean Somerset, Mike T. Nelson, you mentioned, they came out as, as attendees. Mark, uh, Mark Fisher came out once or twice as an attendee yeah. before we even asked them to speak before literally, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, before I even knew who some of these people were, uh, they came out as attendees. And sometimes there would be somebody who was like a brand name person. And it's like, well, I, yeah, I actually met you at the fitness summit two years ago. And it was like that, you know, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't remember that. I know you're telling the truth, but that's how many people were there. Um, the other thing is that it, it, because of the networking potential and the quality of the information and the, and, the, and the relationships that people formed, we would have people come from literally every inhabited continent, maybe not all in the same year, but you know, Australia, Asia, you know, well, I don't know about Africa. In South Africa, yes. So um, South America, we, we would have people from uh, uh, every continent come out um, because where else are you going to meet? That Where else are you going to find this many people who you will find this interesting and who you want to know all in one place? And that's what we've um, – I, I hope that's what our legacy is. Well, I think it's had a major impact on the industry, and I know it's done an enormous amount of things to inspire a lot of people's careers. I brought – you know, a couple more friends down last year and it just changed their perspective on things. They loved it. So it's, it's a great event. I love being able to bring people to it just to share that, that world because it's, it's done a lot for me. Lou, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. And, uh, and to everybody else, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in every week. And, you know, now it's what, like 103 ish episodes, I believe we're at. Yeah. So, you know, last week was Brian Cron and we just got more stuff planned for you guys. Cool. See you guys. Shut up and sit down.